Well, I can't wait to meet our host. I hear this is only one of his beat parties. Stay positive, the love will come back to me. Stay positive, the love will come back to me. Stay positive, the love will come back to me. Stay positive, the love will come back to me. Hey, welcome back to True True to Law with Harry Day. I'm Harry Day and I'm not going to lie. It is Christmas night, meaning today was Christmas. And it is now the night. Actually, it's the day after Christmas because it's 2 a.m. Instead of... Okay, I'll tell you about this in a second. Instead of setting up in the in my office and recording this, uh, I'm laying in my bed in the covers recording this because it's 22 degrees outside, which is warmer, if you want to use that word, than it has been the past three nights or more. We've been in a real cold spell, which I enjoy. I love cold weather. And I'm playing in the background, since we are in here, in the master bedroom recording, some Richard Wagner, otherwise known as Wagner, the German composer. And there's a picture of him. There's 20 of his top uh, overtures, or whatever you want to call it, that we will not hear all of because that's over three hours with the music and this will probably go under an hour. I really don't have a theme for this show. I haven't written anything down. I haven't uh, researched anything, but I thought earlier, knowing that the house would be empty tonight besides my dog Button and myself, that I would maybe hit my more memorable memories that's redundant from my you know from my past interesting things high points low points uh shocking things uh bizarre things and i know that's a, a lot of what my podcast is about in the first place and maybe that's why people listen to it. Um, but who knows? But I guess I need to find a starting place. Other than to say that it has, it was, it has been a great Christmas. There really hasn't been that feeling of loss or missing a loved one. My father has been gone two and a half years. But... He's in a better place considering the condition he was going into. And my mother's doing well for her age, very well for her age. And my kids are well, very blessed with those two. Uh, No wife, divorced, two and a half years, a little longer than two and a half years, two and three quarter years. I really hadn't dated this uh, entire year except for one date I was just taking a break really nothing popping up I have some friends who are females but no dating or or just like uh, 
friends with ben- friends with benedicts <laughs> friends with benefits but i went on one date with a woman we went and ate mexican food in ridgeland and it did not take long for me to find out that she is a racist she uh adamantly projected her dislike of mixed couples of any kind although it was more towards black and white and I didn't say anything other than well I don't have a problem with it you know each each individual can make their own choices and live their own life as long as they're not hurting people and she just like did a shudder So it's deeply rooted in her, probably from her parents. Uh, We said goodbye in the parking lot, and I've yet to talk to her or see her. Really don't want to be involved with a racist. (laughs) I'm not that hard up. You know, I'd rather be happy solo than with the wrong person and unhappy. And my ex could probably say the same. I'm not sure why she was unhappy, but we're not going to get into that. I did a I did a uh, episode years ago, or over a year ago, about the divorce. It wasn't a difficult, ugly divorce. It's just, but it was one, right? So, <clears throat> moments that stick out. In my mind, you know how we talk about sunsets. I talk about sunsets with friends. People post photos, pictures of sunsets. And really on Facebook, someone posts a picture of a sunset. It's near equivalent to posting a picture of a full moon. They take a picture of the full moon and then they post it and everyone that sees it, because everyone's, let's face it, 90% of the people who are looking at Facebook or uh, Twitter or TikTok or whatever people look at, do it on their phone, which means the images are small. And I have, a, I have an iPhone mini, so it's really small. And you look at someone's picture of the full moon. And it's just a white dot in a black sky. And I guess they don't think that they're really not showing you anything. Man, listen to that Wagner go. His most famous piece is Ride of the Valkyries. We'll probably hear that. That was in the movie... Apocalypse now when they attack the village. Um, a moment in my past that is emblazoned in my mind. I was living in California, 2002. I was surfing at San Onofre next to Camp Pendleton beside San Clemente below trestles, if you know surf. I doubt any of you know surf. Um, And the sun was setting. The waves weren't huge, but they were rideable. 
um, the sun's setting, so it's really low, coming down to, you know, getting close to the ocean horizon, due west, which is really looking up coast from where we are, where we were, and the water gets this dark color with a shimmer on top. Um, the sky's lighter than the water, obviously. Behind us is land, so you're not paying attention to land. But I noticed the sun start to have this deformation, this shape inside the circle of the sun. And so I'm watching it. I'm sitting on my longboard. I've probably got a wetsuit on because the water's always cold there. In the summer, I can go without a wetsuit. A lot of people don't. I can. I did, but that's 20 years ago. Um, and I realized the shape that is being silhouetted by the setting sun behind it is Catalina Island. Well, that island is 50 miles north from where I am is Los Angeles. And then you go however many miles west that the island is offshore. So it's way up there. But I'm seeing the silhouette of Catalina Island in front of the orange to pink to dark purple-orange sun sinking behind the island. And I, I can just see it. I see it all the time in my mind. And the sun goes down, and then everything's blue, various colors of blue. Maybe I catch another wave, go in, shower off on the little outdoor shower, and I put my board in the back of my, what did I have at the time? I had a 19, I had a 2000, I had a year 2000 blue Suburban with the ambulance doors on the back. I had padding, I had egg crate on the floor of the back. The seats, all the seats down, so I could put my nine foot boards in the back and I had blankets and pads. I could lay in the back with the doors open, drink whatever liquids I had back there, water, juice, tea, something. I didn't drink much then. And I could still watch the surf until it was just too dark to go. And then I'd go, basically I would go to a grocery store. Ralph's, I believe was the grocery store then in San Clemente. And I would go straight to the uh, donut cabinet and grab a, the best-looking filled or glazed donut in the cabinet and shove the whole thing in my mouth. And then, you know, pick out a few items, shop, pay for it, and leave and go to where I lived in this woman's house. And I did that at that same store until one day a woman followed me, that worked there followed me to the donut cabinet, and I guess they were on to me, so I couldn't do it there anymore. But that sunset was amazing, totally amazing. That's my number one sunset. Sunset. The rest of the sunsets of my top ten sunsets, if you do this, would be in the Mississippi Delta, where it's all big sky, open sky, because if you have clouds and the sun gets beneath the clouds, the color... It was amazing. It was unbelievable. And then there was a sunset 
when we were up in the, uh, me and my buds, surfing on the East Coast in Charleston, we were up in the Morris Island Lighthouse at the top with a little cooler of beer and some marijuana. And we were just watching, you know, in all directions was, was a fun view. Because you're up at the top of an old abandoned lighthouse. And the sunset over the island, because it, it didn't, the island didn't face due east. It was along an angle of coastline. What would be, what would be a member, a highly memorable moment from Charleston? That's not too long. Um, walking around downtown Charleston and the Battery with Philip during a hurricane with a bottle of spiced rum and a giant oven mitt. And we were just walking around, drinking rum, and just, you know, a lot of people had uh, evacuated. And so there weren't many cars on the streets running around or anything. It was just, you know, there's palm fronds blowing around. And that was interesting because we very early evacuated. The six years I was there, I evacuated twice from hurricanes. One was Floyd bearing down straight on us. They thought it was going to come straight into Folly and be really bad, but it ended up... We left the morning it was supposed to hit, and it curved and went up coast into North Carolina. And then there was another one. I can't think of the name of it. We always stayed for the surf. The pre surf if it was close was always really really messy it was big but it was messy but we were you know we were in surf shape and so we went out and surfed it and just fought it i mean it was a fight when surf's messy it's a fight to get back out riding in is easy get back out outside the break is a fight when it's soupy it's called victory at sea conditions that's what we call it um, rambling on, speaking of memorable moments, this was in the Delta at my friend's place, and we, me and my friend were on our four-wheelers coming in from uh, either deer or duck hunting uh, in the morning after a morning hunt. I'm not sure. I, I can't remember. But we were racing, and we never did this, but we were racing in. And his four-wheeler was faster than mine. And he was going down along the uh, drain, drainage ditch that ran from the back down across the field, past the Indian Mounds, along the little flat, you know, it was just barely an impression in the ground drainage, drainage ditch. He was going along that line. I was going along that line, but I behind him and I was trying to keep up he when we got to highway one went up on highway one and turned right to go to the left turn to his house right there I cut right instead of going on the highway and floored it around this big old tree and I saw he was coming up the road and so I turned instead of getting to the crossroad I turned and just jumped 
onto the road to shoot across it in front of them. And I did. But I look right as I'm crossing the road, and there's a big dually pulling a trailer full of equipment that has to slam on the brakes so that it doesn't kill me. I see them slam on the brakes, and I let off the throttle and just coast into the grass across the highway, two-lane two, two highway. And I'm just like got my hand in my head, and I'm just sitting there waiting for that guy to pull in and just go off on me for doing something so stupid. And it, it was one of the more stupid things I've ever done. And I just I felt awful. I felt dumb. I was shaking. There was another car at a stop sign, which was why I went up onto the highway up the up the embankment instead of there and left because we were racing, you know. We were being stupid, Ben. Brian saw it happen. He couldn't tell from his angle going towards the truck, but in the other lane. When I shot across, he's like, here's fixing to die. Well, he'd been a paramedic for almost 20 years, and he's seen bodies hit by trucks and, you know, dead bodies in homes from everything. But, you know, seeing one of your best friends, that would that would be tough. The, the hardest thing he always said was, was dealing with children when he was a paramedic. If they died or if they were dying or if they were terminal, it, it, it gets you. And he, he got to be very callous, which is, you know, it happens when you, when you deal with uh, sick, dying, and dead bodies. You know, um, some of his friends, there were some females who used to come over to the lake and hang out that are uh, paramedics. One of them kept photos on her phone of all the people that she hauled in the back of the ambulances. She'd have photo, usually photos of dead people, like in, in their bed, bloated, on their couch, uh, discolored and slumped over. She just, it was very, and a beautiful girl, woman. But she had the photos on her phone of it all. I asked Brian if he had photos like that. He's like, no. No. I, you know, some of them do that. It's a fetish. Uh, not for me. And uh, it is very strange. Morbid. Uh, why would you keep those? Very strange. And such a good-looking gal. Bizarre. All right, let's shift gears. Let's think of another memorable moment. Um, I would say one time in high school, uh, I grew up with a man named Lou Cully. His father developed the neighborhood I grew up in. They lived across the lake from me. I had a little boat with a motor on it. Lou had a little boat with a motor on it. We zipped around the lake, fished, uh, visited people we knew that lived on the lake down the other fingers of the lake. Um, you know, being boys growing up. And uh, they were members of a place called Mule Jail, which was a little oxbow 
off the Pearl River below the Ross Barnett Reservoir in central Mississippi. And it was excellent fishing, decent hunting, actually good duck hunting, some deer hunting, um, spoonbill catfish that would jump out of the water. That was always really cool. And uh, alligators. And we saw alligators all the time, but we were, oh, God. We, you know, when we were younger, we had 22s, and uh, we'd go to the TGNY store at the entrance to go down to Mule Jail off Old Canton Road. We'd go to TGNY, and another friend who was older than us taught us this trick where you took the, the sticker off a small box of 22s, and you put that price sticker on the big box of 22s, which was called a brick. And so a box of 22s cost like 99 cents. It might have been 69 cents back then. And we would take it and put it on a brick of 22s, which I think was 10 or 12 boxes of 50, 22 bullets per box. I thought, you can't shoot all those in one day unless you try. And we'd put that little cheap sticker on that big box of 22s, and we'd... We'd go to the registers and choose what we thought would be the most gullible woman working at the registers, and we'd go through there and pay less than a dollar for all the 22s we could shoot in a weekend and go to Mule Jail. And Lou and I, when we were really young, would sit up on this high bank where their cabin used to be, but it burned down when I was a little boy. I remember the cabin very vaguely. It was like a, a cabin. It wasn't on stilts, but it was a stacked cabin, but it burned down somehow. So we would get up on that bank. Before we could drive, Mr. Cully would give us two twenty twos and boxes of twenty twos, and we'd sit up on that high bank looking down at the Oxbow uh, Lake, which is like a river that doesn't flow because it's cut off from the main river. It used to be the main river. It's not anymore. And we'd sit up there. It's middle of the day. It might be hot. It might not be hot. I don't know. It, but you never felt heat when you were a child. And we had our 22s. We're sitting together. We probably had a Coca-Cola. And gar, a fish called a gar, they like to come to the surface of the water for a little bit and then go back down. Well, when any fish came to the surface, any turtle came to the surface, we would pop them. And, and the bullets, you know, shooting down, the bullets hit the water, thunk, thunk. If you hit the gar, you'd see their white belly because they would roll. And, uh, uh-oh, my Wagner went off. How the hell? But we shot... We got to be excellent shots. That's probably why I'm such a good shot. Because we shot, I don't know, thousands of 22 bullets at anything around us. Birds, turtles, fish, the whole deal. I've got to, I've got to fix this. Okay, maybe that'll play.
Yeah. Um, so anyway, that kind of lays down the foundation of, of us going to Mule Jail when we were young. Well, we're older now. We can go down there on our own. And so we'd walk around with twenty twos, looking for stuff to shoot. And there was this spot where you had to wade through about three feet of water for about 20 feet to an island that was a long spit of land. We were looking for snakes to shoot. And so by the time we're both thigh deep in this water, carrying our 22s, maybe water bottles, something's moving in the cane to our left into the water. And we're like, who is pushing a boat in the water there? And then we see a leg, and we realize that is a large alligator, 30 feet away, sliding in the water. We hustled out of that water so damn fast. And then we were on the island, so we would have to... We would have to wade back through it to get out of there. That sticks in my mind. Man, we had a lot of fun. Mule jail. It was called mule jail because during the Civil War, supposedly the Confederates brought all the mules out of Jackson and hit them upriver in this uh, island between the river and the oxbow. And that island's kind of flat, full of cane. And supposedly that's where they hid, you know, all their mules. I don't know why they say jail, but that was that's a big stick to me. More recently, several, just several years ago, not much, when I would work with Greg Harkins, who I've got to interview. He's my neighbor. He sold me this two acres to build a house so I could get out of the HOA repression, oppression in Madison. Um, he has all this land back behind his house. He cuts his own trees. He's older now and doesn't do as much as what he used to do. He used to be able to do it all. He had a film crew come out to video a special about him, like a video interview. So he decides he's going to cut down the biggest oak tree and have them film it. And he said, Harry, I want you to come with me to be my spotter. And so while I'm cutting it, you let me know what the tree's doing. I'm like, yeah, I can do that because I've done that for him a bunch of times. Now, I wasn't with him the time a a Widowmaker fell out of the tree next to the tree he was cutting down and hit him in the head. He's lucky he didn't die from that. It just creased his scalp. But uh, this time, he's it's, it's a huge oak. It's so big around. He was just going big. That was Greg. He's a master self-promoter. I got to get him interviewed. Y'all will flip out on this man. He hid my ducks from me in my sink. I thought he took all my ducks the other night. I shot me and my son shot a bunch of ducks on his lake Friday evening. And I gave him four, but I didn't clean them because cleaning 12 ducks is too much. That's a, you know, cleaning a duck. If you don't know what you're doing, it's going to take a long time. If you know what you're doing, you still got to get all the feathers off of them, cut off the head, cut off the feet, cut off the wings. Then make sure all the little stubble of feathers and everything's off of them. So now it's bare, right? It's naked 
headless, wingless, footless. So then you slit it right below the breastbone where the breast meat starts. And then you put two fingers in there and you pull out the hard stomach. It's hard like a piece of charcoal. And then all the intestines and then the lungs and the heart and the liver. You get all that out of there. Then you press your fingers down against the rib cage and pull your fingers back. And that gets the rest of the lung out of there. Then you got to go way up in there with two fingers and get the little goozle that makes its uh, wood duck noise. Because that's what we shoot here is wood ducks mainly. And then there's acorns all in their craw. You usually pop those out the, the front end and out of their neck after you cut their head off. Um, so I had four ducks. I wasn't going to clean for them. It's freezing cold all day the last three days. So I, by the time I've cleaned eight, my hands are frozen. I got six cleaned before my hands were frozen. And so the last two, I couldn't really feel what I was doing on the inside, but I've cleaned so many in my time that I just, um, it's routine. And so I've got eight clean ducks washed off. I give two to my friends, the seals. I give one to my mom. She wants to make a gumbo. Uh, I've got four uncleaned in a bag in my fridge. I told Greg, that's where they are. You can come get them whenever you want. And then I've got five left, and they're in, they're cleaned, and they're in a mixing bowl of water with salt. It's a brine solution. It draws the blood out, makes them less gamey. And so I go to my mom's with my kids for Christmas dinner. And when we get back home, and I look in the sink, and there's no ducks. I'm like, damn it, Greg took all the ducks. So I went and looked in the fridge. Well, he got the feathered ducks that were his, but he took my ducks too. And so I called him. I was like, Greg, where are my five ducks in the sink? He goes, oh, you don't see them? I'm like, no, I don't see them. He goes, well, look, they're there. I'm looking around my sink, and I'm like, I'm just seeing dirty dishes and empty bowls. I'm like, no. And now I know he's messing with me and that they're somewhere, obviously. And he goes, you don't see the note? And so I see this note. I didn't even recognize it. Sitting on top of a pile of bowls with dishes laid on top. So I pull all that apart, and he'd hidden my, he'd hidden my ducks underneath there. And so he got me good. And I told my other neighbor, Preston, tonight, that uh, I told Greg I'm going to remember this little gag you got me. And I think what I'm going to do is when Greg's not home, I'm going to go take all his toilet paper to where when he goes to the bathroom, he ain't got no toilet paper. So that will be funny. I cannot wait to do that. I've got a lot of really cool memories here. But, uh, mm, you know, when I was part of a deer camp down in uh, Port Gibson with my ex's family, the hills were up and down, and I had my four-wheeler, and it was dark or getting dark, and I was headed back to the camp, and you go through this creek, clay bottom creek, down, down, down this hill, into the clay bottom, clay bottom creek, through the water, up a small hill, down sideways along a hill on a trail, and then up a steep hill for like God, 50 yards straight up, not straight up, but you know, more than 45 degree angle. You got to lean forward and gun it. So I lean forward and gun it as I'm going up. 
And in front of me is the silhouette of this beautiful buck with nice horns. Run, I can't see it in my headlights. I just see its silhouette at the top running uh, in the getting dark sky. It's still kind of blue. And it's cold. I'm seeing that, and I'm chasing it up, and it goes up the left side to get out of there. That stands in my mind. That was really cool. I've seen deer go up 20, 30-foot flat dirt walls. You know how they cut when they're laying roads and they don't want to go up and down, up and down, so they they just doze through a hillside? And, like, you have the wall of the hillside where they dug it out on your left and right. I've seen deer come down one side, two, three, four-step jump across the, you know, two-lane road, not even that wide, this is in the country, and go straight up that dirt wall. And they do it with their hind legs only. Their forelegs just hang low against their body. And they just, like, jump, double-legged at a time, bump, 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 up and gone. Deer are the most amazing things I've seen running through the woods, the most amazing survivors that I've seen run off in the woods and you never find them if they've been shot, which is awful, but it happens. I don't want to get into that that scenario where I shot the jaw off a deer. It reminded me of a Civil War picture where a man had no jaw and you could see his entire tongue. Um, gosh, there's got to be things, other things, you know, surfing outside of Ixtapa, Mexico, we found this break that breaked right, which would be front side, which was the best for carving waves when you're shooting down the curl of it while it breaks behind you. The longest rides I'd ever ridden, and then either you run up the beach to the jetty and just paddle in the water, and the water's pulling you right out to the break easily, or you do the long paddle outside the break back to where it first starts breaking outside the jetty where the river hits the ocean. This is the Pacific Ocean. That, oh, that was a day of surf, man. That was a day of surf. Some French, some young French woman came up to me. I was worn out and asked if I was one of those guys surfing out there. I was like, yeah, I was, I'm sitting here with surfboards and a surf shirt and surf pants and surf shorts. <laughs> that was, yeah, I was out there surfing and she was just so impressed. And her boyfriend was not quite as impressed. <laughs> But, uh, you know, what do you do? You just, I mean, you'll have to listen to a Mexican Surf Trip or whatever I titled it, a six six or seven-part episode of the Surf Trip to Mexico in 1999. That was, that was an experience. That was just one 30-day experience. I'll never forget. But I remember... When I lived in California, me and some buddies went to Baja and went surfing. And then on our way back, 
the the San Diego uh, border crossing. It was always jam packed with cars going from Mexico into San Diego. Like you'd wait hours sometimes. But we just decided we didn't want to wait, and we would drive east along the border to the Yorba Linda, maybe uh, border crossing. And it, I know that it was Highway Two. I don't know what the other highway was. It was a crossing where uh, lots of traffic took turns going through this stop sign of, like, you know, infinite traffic one at a time where two highways cross, but Mexican highways, the old ones are not in good surface shape. There are only two lanes. And we were... At that stop sign. And as we got closer to the stop sign to where we would turn and go to the exit, we saw this ball of flame shoot up into the air. And we were like, whoa, someone's shooting fireballs. And so we get closer, we see another fireball, like, dang, they're good. And so we get to the light, and it's an eight-year-old boy with a uh, clear, I guess, liquor bottle-looking bottle full of something clear. And he had a lighter in one hand and that in the other. His face was beet red from the heat. It was swollen and beet red from the heat of blowing fireballs. And he blew a fireball. I had no money on me left from the trip. Zero. I would have given him all the money I had, had I had any money on me. And uh, I start looking around. This is all happening within five minutes. I start looking around, and there's no adult with him. Instead, there's his little brother with him, I guess, going to the cars and, and gathering coins and pesos and dollars from whoever will give him money for blowing fireballs. An eight-year-old boy. He might have been six. He was little. And his little brother was littler. By themselves, it was dark. And he's just blowing fireballs with some... I don't, I don't know what liquid he was blowing fireballs with out of his mouth. Uh, lighter fluid? I have no idea. His face was so pink and swollen. And he was a pro, dude. It, it it was that really, really is a striking memory. So much, just that boy. That was twenty years ago. Where where is he now? He's probably thirty, twenty six, twenty eight. Um, is he alive? What's he doing? Is he working for the cartel? Has he been killed by the cartel? It's so rough there now. I mean, it was rough before, but golly. Okay, we need another whoa moment. Let me think. Let me think. I cannot think of a whoa moment. I know there is some. Um...
Eagle Lake. Any moments from Eagle Lake? No. I remember when I shot my first deer, it was with a 20 gauge from the hip with buckshot. I just used the bathroom on a tree. Let me think. Uh, Vicksburg. Oh my gosh. So when we were old enough to drive and my parents stopped going to Eagle Lake and usually Lou's parents were there, but it got to be, it was just his mom. They were never really, they were definitely not hover parented. They did pretty much whatever they wanted as long as they were, you know, did things for their parents too. And so we're over there. Lou, me, Heath, Alan Phillips. And uh, we decide we're going to leave Eagle Lake. We're going to drive to Vicksburg. We're going to go across the Mississippi River to Daiquiri World and get some daiquiris. Because why not? It's nighttime. It's weekend. It's deer season. So before we even get off of Eagle Lake Road at Highway 61, Alan has strapped on Lou's six-shooter, or maybe it was Alan's six-shooter, but he opened the window, and as we went past signs, he was shooting signs. He was a wild man back then. He is a stand-up man now. But, you know, when we were young, we were wild. He was wild. So <laughs> we're like, wow, that's loud. Wow, that's cool, whatever, you know. And so we go get to Vicksburg. It doesn't take too much time. Cross the river. There's a line going around Daiquiri World. Um, it's where you can be 18 and get high alcohol content daiquiris in a huge styrofoam cup with the lid and a straw. And so we all order, you know, whatever flavored daiquiris we feel like we want. But while we're there, there's some guys in the parking lot, some locals, just talking trash and starting shit. And uh, they start, as we get near the order thing, they start uh, kind of yelling at us for whatever reason. Lou has a big jacked up blazer, like way up in the air, big tires. And so Alan has the pistol in a shoulder holster of some sort and pulls his jacket open and flashes a pistol at him. All that it was pissed them off. Why we stopped to get out of the vehicle, I have no idea. Some guy walks up to Heath. He was on the golf team with me. He was in my grade. The other two were a grade above me at school. Asks him, he says, hey, let's fight. And he puts his hand on the hips. He's like, nah, I don't think so. And this dude sucker punches him right in the nose. Heath's knees buckle. He tries to keep standing, but he can't. He goes down. We must have already got our daiquiris because all four of us had big, giant daiquiris. Um, Lou steps in, diffuses the entire situation. I was talking to some girls in a car behind us. I was never a fighter. Um, not when I was young. And so I'm drinking my, we're in the vehicle and we're headed back to Vicksburg because everybody hung out at Battlefield Mall 
shopping center. There was a McDonald's there too. And so I've drank my huge daiquiri. Heath didn't want his daiquiris. He's like 36 ounce daiquiris. So I'm drinking down his daiquiri. I am hammered when we get to the McDonald's at Battlefield Mall in Vicksburg, right on Highway 20, I-20. Um, I don't know what Lou and Alan are doing, but I take, I stumble, I stumble, take Heath to the bathroom so he can clean all the blood tubes that have solidified in his nose. His nose wasn't broken or cut, but the inside was a mess. And uh, I try to go in the stall to use the bathroom, and I guess I hung from the door by one arm while going in like I was going to swing, and the whole stall came down on top of me on the floor with a crash. He's laughing his ass off at me, and he's blowing blood out of his nose in the sink. I stand up, and the door opens, and a very tall black sheriff, probably deputy sheriff, walks in and just as cool as he could be like it was in the old days. What's going on in here? And uh, Heath goes, "Uh, I got a bloody nose. And I was like, this thing, I opened the door and it fell. (laughs) He's like, well, hurry up, get out of here. (laughs) And we're like, yes, sir. And so, uh, oh, my gosh, I was so wasted. I didn't drink much before I graduated high school. I just it, I got wasted like two times, three times. I can think of three times. Two of them involved Eagle Lake. One of them involved Luke Holly's house when his parents weren't home. Um, man, good times. It's fun to remember the good times, y'all, isn't it? Uh, the next morning, we all got up early. No, I remember we were in my trailer. My parents had a trailer. The Cullies had a trailer next door at Eagle Lake. The deer camp was several miles away. We just had trailer trailers over by the lake. And uh, someone had pot. And so Alan and Heath were smoking pot. Was that that night or the night before? I didn't. I didn't touch it. I was always scared of it back then. And they were laughing in the mirror. And uh, Bo Berry's uncle, he was in our school, his uncle poked his head in the trailer to ask us something or see what we were doing. He never did that. Stuart, he's the one that found my first killed deer. He walked up on it coming to check on me. And uh, great guy. I think he's still alive. Gosh, he's old as Methuselah then. Most of them are gone. It's sad since I'm in my 50s. This would be when I'm in my teens. You know, and they would have been 40. That means they're 80. Mm. Time, man. Time is a mofo. So he, he pokes his head in the door that looks right into the bathroom with the door open. And they weren't smoking pot at the time, but it smelled like pot. And I was just sitting there, and they were being funny. And so he's just, like, got kind of wide-eyed and just didn't know what to say and turned around and left, and they laughed. And I was just like, oh, no, where will this go? And nothing ever came of that. 
So we actually get up early the next morning and go hunting. And uh, there was this stand that was old. And he, he or I won, tried to climb into it, and it fell apart. And and one of us, whoever climbed it, fell 10, 15 feet into the leaves on this on these spoil mounds where they dug out still bio, because this is the delta, it's usually flat. And that gives him the idea, that's what I'll tell my parents, I fell out of a deer stand. And that's what he told them. And I guess it worked. But he got punched by, this guy was Coast Guard, and he was just punch-happy butthole. And he sure popped Heath. I'm surprised we didn't just get bum rushed because Alan flashed the pistol that's a memorable night right I don't think I need to do any more after that uh, I don't know what I'll call this memorable stories I'm not going to post it until uh, tomorrow because it's late what time is it it's 3 o'clock a.m. I don't have to get up early I'm going to take Preston deer hunting tomorrow over at my place. Maybe we'll get a deer. Who knows? The wind will be right if we can get to the creek. And then we can hunt backwards. Oh, we'll have to see. Preston Stan didn't really do that, but he should be all right. He's smart. Good hunter. So, I hope y'all had a Merry Christmas. I had a really Merry Christmas. Um, being divorced. Splitting the kids. Um, it worked out this Christmas where I had them Christmas Eve day, Christmas Eve, Christmas morning, past midday until their mom finally showed up to take them to her dad's, who is awesome. Old, uh, I don't know, I call him, I just call him Ralph, but he's like a dad to me. He's good man. But you need to call these people you hadn't talked to over these Christmas holidays or send them messages or texts, even if it's cliche to send texts to everybody, Merry Christmas. Do it anyway so they'll know you're still alive, so they know you're out there and you're thinking of them because they received one from you. I send out Christmas cards. I make my own Christmas cards by photos of the kids. I doctor them up. I get them printed through Vistaprint, get them mailed here, Envelope them, stamp them, address them, get them out. I sent out a Christmas card once of a Chinese family in a Christmas outfit saying Merry Christmas from the days. And it was a Chinese family. And I sent out one <laughs> of a family that were, it was a family of four, white family of four, man, woman, daughter, son, I think. No, son, son. But uh, I doctored it on the on a, 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 a paint or whatever it is where you can um, edit your photos online. And I put, you know how you put like black slashes or dashes or smudges across people's eyes or faces so you can't recognize who it is? Well, it's this white couple with fig leaves over their... Uh, parts, their uh, their nudie parts, 
And so I put the little slashes over their eyes and uh, one of their nudie parts so it could be somewhere. But it wasn't even my family. It was some stranger's family that I found online. And I sent those out to, you know, 30 recipients of Christmas cards. And I've gotten to where people wonder what my Christmas card will be. And this this year was tame. My kids had ugly Christmas sweaters in front of Walmart. The lighting ended up not being very good. But uh, people liked them. I didn't. But that's okay. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that you have the Christmas spirit, that you get in touch with your family and friends, and at at minimal touch base, that things are good and you're thinking of them. And use that ripple of kindness, push it out, being friendly to strangers. It's key to improving your community and this world. And, of course, with Christmas, we all need peace. Roll!